this morning I'm going to continue my uh, series through Acts, and I pray that uh, you would uh, show a lot of grace uh, to me this morning. As you could probably tell, my head is swimming with a, with a cold, and so if I don't sound quite the same, I just ask for your forgiveness as, as we work through this together. So um, as we continue to work through Acts, I, I want us to see the Pharisee or uh, the Sadducees. And after, after the, the disciples and the apostles made a strong defense for who Jesus was, the, the council became very upset and they threatened to kill the apostles. And this morning I want us to understand the negative reaction of the council so that we don't repeat their mistake in our life. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you and invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 33 through 35 this morning. That's pretty much where we're going to stay this morning. 33 through 35. As you're turning there, uh, again, a little bit more context is uh, after the disciples, uh, apostles escaped from jail, they began to preach. And so the Sadducees brought the apostles in for questioning where Peter accuses the council of, of killing Jesus and stands firm and his loyalty to him. So when we see verse 33 through 35, we see Luke writing under inspiration uh, of the Holy Spirit when it says, when the council heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to them to put the men of Israel or put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. The Sadducees, the council, the Sanhedrin, they go by all those different names in this context, they had the authority to kill anyone that they believed were theological lawbreakers, especially if they had uh, committed heresy or if they claimed to uh, preach any other uh, uh, Messiah had come who was not the Messiah. They saw that as heresy, and they saw that as idolatry, and they based this on certain Old Testament laws regarding heretics. And we see this in action. We see them actually take an a uh, action upon uh, a young man named Stephen two chapters later in Acts 7 when they stoned him for what Acts 7 says, for speaking against Moses and God. And how did Stephen in Acts 7 speak against Moses and God? Well, he professed a clear faith in Christ. And so when we read in verse 33, it doesn't seem as if the council is grieved about this decision, that they want to put him to death, that they want to put the apostles to death. It doesn't seem that they are in any way brokenhearted and and crushed in their spirit that they think this is the action that needs to be taken. That they were so far outside the bounds of orthodoxy that they needed to kill them. It doesn't seem there's any grieving on the part of the Sadducees that warranted their death. It seems as if their, their, their desire to kill the apostles came from a place of, of unsubmitted and unrepented uh, emotions that led to a negative desire, a satanic desire, 
to kill. I want us to notice the progression in the Sadducees' line of thinking here. If you notice, it, it goes from they heard something, they heard what Jesus or what the apostles said regarding Jesus, then it progresses to they were enraged, then they wanted to kill. There was a stimuli that led to an emotion not submitted to Christ that led to the ungodly desire of wanting to kill someone else. Now, I think it's a pretty fair assessment here this morning that we've never killed anyone physically in our anger. But it's easy, I think, for our emotions at times to, to get the best of us when we hear things that hurt or upset us. When they do get the best of us, when they do hurt us and when they do upset us, sometimes we end up doing things that, may, while it may not be physical death, but they still end up damaging another person, hurting our uh, reputations, our relationships, and ultimately damaging our witness. It can happen easily. And it can happen extremely quickly. Look at how the dominoes fell with the council. Verse 33 says, They heard again, they were enraged, and then they had the desire to kill. And we've probably, again, never taken things to that degree that the council wanted to take them. But I can almost guarantee you that we've all felt that type of anger at some point in our life. And perhaps there's been a time in your life when you failed to allow the Holy Spirit to guide your emotions. There's definitely been times in my life when I haven't let the Holy Spirit guide my emotions. Maybe you've failed to do that and it got out of hand. Maybe, you, maybe how you spoke to someone was an evidence of that. Maybe it was how you spoke about someone or you took retribution against someone in your anger that was not submitted to Jesus and it led to an unfortunate and ungodly result. Your anger may not be violent per se like the Pharisees wanting to kill because you'll get thrown into jail. And that restrains us. But there may have been action that you've taken and I've taken nonetheless at times. Many times when rage, which is what we see here in the Sadducees, isn't it? They had an emotion that said they were enraged and they desired to kill. When rage gets to the level of the Sadducees, the person we end up hurting the most isn't the other person most of the time. The person our rage ends up hurting the most is ourselves. Christian therapist and author David Pallison writes in his book, Good and Angry, that, quote, anger occurs not only in your body, emotions, thoughts, and actions. It comes from your deepest motives. The smallest incident of irritation or the merest lingering in bitterness reveals vast truths about you, if you're willing to look. When anger goes astray, it says something about how we are going astray inside about who is the center of the universe. When anger runs amok into temper, grousing, or bitterness, you don't just need, to need a technique to calm yourself down. 
You don't need your circumstances to change. You don't need other people to change. Your core motives need to change. That's a, that's a big thing that's very difficult for many of us to swallow. Because when we get angry, we usually think it's that other person that has done something to me. I'm going to get back at them. When Really, when anger gets out of control, it reveals much more about us rather than the hurt that we've incurred. It doesn't mean that hurt has not happened or that trauma has not happened. It probably has. But our abilities to allow our anger to get out of control is really upon us. And it's something that needs to be submitted daily and moment by moment, situation by situation to the Holy Spirit. The Sadducees, in verse 33, they had a choice. They had a choice to make after hearing what the apostles said. When the apostles spoke that truth, the council had to decide whether to move forward with their plan to kill the apostles, or on the other hand, prayerfully reason through it and try to correct the apostles if they felt they were in error. The council did instead what we sometimes do when we fail to check our anger, when we fail to check our motives. Notice verse 33 again. The ESV version, which is what I'm preaching out and what you see uh, in your notes and in the PowerPoint, the ESC, ESV says the council were so enraged that it sparked a desire in them to kill. Luke says the, count, says the council wanted, it was their desire to kill them. It wasn't that necessarily they were following the order of the law or they were just obedient to what they believed the Old Testament required of heretics. It says that they personally wanted blood. They wanted this revenge and rest, retribution against these people who had made them look like fools for the last, what, two chapters of Acts. When anger or any other emotion, any other emotion, takes root in our mind when we ruminate over it constantly. Okay, some people might call it spinning on it. It's like a, like a record in your mind that just keeps going over and over and over. When it takes root in our mind and it takes root in our heart, what we're passionate about, when something's got your heart, it's something you're passionate about, so you're thinking about it, and it's got all your mental, and then you got your heart, which is all your emotional and passionate energy, is focused on this anger, what it ends up doing is not necessarily to the other person, but it ends up changing your heart. It changes your desires. We go from cultivating desires, as we should be as Christians, that need to match those of Christ Jesus to having desires that, unfortunately, are more sinister. And I would even say demonic. Those moments, friends, when we feel anger and rage changing our heart's desire to desire or want another's harm, we need to take immediate action and submit that desire immediately when it rises up in our heart and mind. And not let it ruminate in our minds. Not let it ruminate in our hearts. Submit that desire to Jesus and repent, not only for the other person's sake, but ultimately for your own soul. 
that this is something that Jesus is doing in your life to conform you more to His image. If we don't repent, our emotions and our desires will ferment over time if we're not careful. And we will become drunk on those desires. And in the end, anger, which is a rightful emotion at times when there's genuine hurt in life, now is being used by Satan in the hands not to tear another person apart or to do rightful justice, but to tear you apart. It's a trick used by Satan to hurt and use your pain against you. And it's done by convincing you that the truth, that the wrath, the action that you take in your own anger is justified because of what the other person did. And instead of feeling the peace that comes from trusting God's ability to work in other people's hearts and situations. Satan works in us a temperament, an attitude, a posture where we are now always on edge. Walking around with boiling hearts, so to speak, and unable to give love or to accept love. It's a trap that anger puts in our hearts by Satan. When we feel those moments with friends, with family, with co-workers, or even complete strangers that, that enrage us to the point we begin to desire their social, emotional, mental, vocational, or maybe even physical harm, we know, we know for a fact that is not from the Holy Spirit. The council failed to put the brakes on their hijacked emotions in verse 33. They felt it. And they said they, they heard the truth. They felt enraged. But they continued it on. They didn't put a period at the end of that verse. They allowed it to move over into desire. Satan hijacked their emotions and used it for satanic purposes. They wanted to kill the apostles. They truly believed they needed. They needed to act as the hand of God in a sense and hold the apostles to the ultimate account. But the last time I checked, the last time I checked, Paul wasn't joking in, 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 when he quotes Deuteronomy in Romans 12.19 where he writes this. He says, Beloved, never what? Avenge yourself. But leave it. Leave it. I mean, that's what kind of trust does that take, friends? Just leave it into where? Is it just leave it into some vacuous place? Where does it say to leave it to? Leave it to what? Leave it to the wrath of God. That's heavy language, isn't it? We leave it alone because we aren't able to really carry it well, but Jesus is. And He deals with it perfectly. He says, leave it to the wrath of God for, and here's your because, it wasn't just like put a period on it, like hoping Jesus can take care of it. It says this, and he quotes Deuteronomy here where he says, For it is written, vengeance, this is God speaking, vengeance is whose? It's mine. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Says who? Says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. That's my possession. It's not yours. And it's not mine. It's God's alone. 
Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul does not say, make sure you prayed about it before you take vengeance. Paul never says, he doesn't advise to use vengeance only when it is absolutely necessary. He says, never. You know what that means in the Greek? Never. It means never do it. Ever. Ah, that's hard. Because we struggle with this all the time. Never means never. It, it takes your circumstance out of it. He says, never do this. But does it mean that we're just kind of passive and we don't do anything? No, what do we do? Our action is we put that into the hands of somebody who is very good and, and cuts like a surgical knife with how to take care of other people in situations. You leave it not to your own vengeance, but you leave it to the wrath of God because vengeance is His domain alone. Why? We aren't designed to carry vengeance. We aren't designed to wield it. And when we do, we're like the proverbial monkeys with loaded guns. We can do a lot of damage. We're made in God's image, but we are not God Himself. And when we forget that, damage happens. So we should never forget that. When we attempt vengeance in any form, we are stepping into the role of God in someone else's life. When we use vengeance to control the people and the situations, we end up inadvertently dethroning Jesus in our own lives. And what we really are ending up saying when we say, I'm going to take Jesus uh, off the throne and I'm going to take on vengeance is, my kingdom come, my will be done or else. Again, David Pallison says in Good and Angry, he says, something miraculous happens when, when I no longer say, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth. My motives no longer operate in the God usurping mode. The mercy that humbles us, read this really closely, the mercy that humbles us begins to master us. I'll read it again. The mercy that humbles us begins to master us and my universe returns to reality. Isn't that fantastic? That when we act out of anger, that is our master. And it's controlling you. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that. If, if anything is to master me, I want it to be the Holy Spirit. And I fail in this so many times. But I think this is a practical way that so many people, so many common Christian, honest-to-goodness people, this is how we end up failing in our own life is letting our anger get the best of us and letting that control us instead of letting the peace of Christ reign in our hearts, a way of taking our eyes off Jesus and dethroning Him when we take vengeance for our own. Paul says the Christian response to the things that enrage us is to leave it leave it. 
to actively give away, to purposefully abandon vengeance. And where do we abandon it to? It's not just like we leave it on the side of the road. We abandon it, friends, to the wrath of God. Friend, what things in your life need to be left <laughs> this morning? What things can you think of right now? I was like, I need to leave that person, that situation, that encounter. I need to leave that to the wrath of God. Perhaps the thing you need to leave was said to you this morning. Perhaps the thing you need to leave is a slight that someone gave you years ago that has caused you to be angry and have resentment and bitterness. Now, what I don't want us to do, don't confuse leaving it to the wrath of God with just letting it go. Right, Disney princess? Let it go. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not just like, just don't think about it anymore. We, we leave it to the wrath of God with purpose and with intention. When we leave something or someone to the wrath of God, it means we truly trust, hear me on this, we truly trust God to be God with our hurt. That we actually believe God is big enough and trustworthy enough to handle our pain rightly and not continue the damage done in our heart. Leaving it to the wrath of God means trusting that God can do far, far more to, help, to hold another person accountable than we ever could. And most of all, it means knowing that God has a plan for you moving forward and you can't get there if you're holding on to all that baggage. So you let Him carry it. This is what we, we, we leave it to Him. Because we can't carry it because it's a weight. You know if you've carried this stuff in your life, it's not a freedom. These aren't wings. Your wrath isn't wings. It's shackles. And so he says, leave it with me because I alone can carry it. You can't even carry it. You couldn't even if you wanted to. It moves you from being a victim of circumstance to being a victor in Christ. Will you leave it with Him this morning? And we shouldn't confuse leaving it to the wrath of God with being people of inaction either. I think as I've mentioned before, it's only right for us to be angry at some of the things in our culture. As believers, we should be angry about homelessness, violence, domestic abuse, hunger, war, poverty, homes without stable parents, and drug addictions, just to name a few. We should be upset about those things. But I'd question whether one is truly redeemed if those things did not make us angry. But Scripture is full of examples how these things anger the heart of God. Believers leave individuals and systems that hurt and exploit others to the wrath of God. But we take action as believers, don't we? Not with violence or with harsh words, but where there is violence, we work for peace. Where there is domestic abuse, we provide a place of refuge. Where there is hunger, we feed. Where there is poverty, we help people get back on their feet. Where there's ignorance, we educate. We overcome the breakdown of the family and how we structure our own. We work against the breakdown of marriage in a society being 100% committed and faithful to our own marriages and being living examples 
of what marriage means to a culture that has lost sight of its meaning. When we get caught up in the cycle of allowing the words and the actions of others to make us furious enough to act upon it, instead of allowing room for God's wrath, we end up missing very precious blessings that God wants for us in our life. We end up missing the peace of Christ. We end up missing out on a relationship with Jesus, not growing as it should, because our focus is off of Him and focused on someone else or something else. We miss out on what God has for us today because we're laser focused on what has been done to us in the past. Our obsession with other people and situations run the risk of hurting others and damaging relationships with those who need our presence right now the most. The council in verse 33 not only took their eyes off of God, but I doubt they never had them there in the first place. And because of that, their emotions served as a foothold for Satan to work. And as we'll see next week, it's, it's good that in God's providence, the wisest member of the council, Gamaliel, talked them down with wisdom. But as our team comes to lead us this morning, in a time of response, I want us here this morning, before we dismiss, I want us to consider, to think about, mull it over in your head, mull it through in your heart, consider what we might need to learn about what it means to follow Christ from the negative example of the council. If you were honest this morning, you might see yourself in the council. You might notice a pattern in them that feels oddly familiar because it also resides in you. You may notice that like them, you claim to be a follower of God, but have allowed Satan to get a foothold in your life in the same way. This morning, friends, let's repent of seeking to be God in situations that we don't have control over. And let's believe deeply enough in the grace of Jesus to trust Him with our pain and with our hurt. Will you come this morning? Let's pray together. 